Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get into the cloud right now. We've got Ido Susan uh, with us, founder of DriveNets. Um, he had founded Intucell, sold at Cisco, worked for them for a while, um, but now he's back out there uh, building a bigger company. You've got, uh, Ido, what, 200, 200 uh, million dollars in funding already? Yes. So what are you doing at DriveNets? What's your main focus after coming out of uh, Intucell and Cisco? Our goal is uh, basically to change uh, the network and the internet infrastructure are designed and build and operate as of today, supporting our uh, customer, the operators like AT&T and other um, to reduce the cost per bit and to create new revenue. Because the way that we are uh, consume the network um, as consumer enterprise different uh, changed dramatically and the network um, didn't. And we are here to support and uh, drive the transformation to the cloud. Yeah, you would think that a lot of that would have been accelerated through the pandemic. But somehow we look at our country and we're still pretty woefully behind. Is that fair to say? Um, if you, you know, we operate worldwide. So uh, the, the U.S. market are advancing in this area. But I think... Um, the borders between consumers and enterprise are not exist anymore. Our uh, home, it's our new office. And uh, mm. if um, the operators will not uh, focusing to roll out fiber to the home, 5G, Wi-Fi 6 capability, um, we will not will be able to work, to study from home and to support the demand. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for houses right now in the tri-state area and every place that I look at takes pains to point out there's room for a home office. It's, it's recently been rewired, you know, or if it hasn't, it just stays on the market for uh, 150 days and nobody nobody wants to buy it. How is it competing, Ido, with your former employer, with behemoths like Cisco and Juniper and these gigantic companies? How do you get, um, I know you recently got a contract with AT&T. How do you get contracts um, with, with, with these huge clients when you have to compete with, you know, the biggest Goliaths in the world? First of all, uh, as you mentioned, um, um, you know, Cisco was acquired my previous company and I'm not forget where I'm coming from. It's an amazing company and also the, the rest of the incumbent in this industry. Uh, but because I'm coming from uh, Cisco, I know how it's hard and almost impossible to change that you are uh, doing business because you need to support uh, the stock. You need to run after the quarterly revenue and to do a uh, transformation to your technology and the way that you are selling and create value to the customer, it's very hard. Um, so, you know, we are here to do challenge. Uh, money, it's not our drive anymore, and we are here to uh, transform um, the, the network industry, big in industry, and to create value. And the customer like AT&T and other are looking for startups like us that will help them to disrupt the way that they are operate and build their network in order to, again, create new revenue and to reduce uh, the cost. I'm wondering also with this shift to the home office, what the cybersecurity concerns are. I know that's a huge issue that a lot of employers are struggling with. Yes, cybersecurity, it's a big thread all over. Um, it's not related only to home, to our mobile, to our privacy. Um, we see a lot of uh, uh, challenges. 
I think um, the way and the opportunity for uh, the operators um, to help to protect our privacy and to help to drive more security to any type of device that we are connected, if it's IoT, mobile, home, you name it, um, it's a big opportunity, and I think um, I cannot share too much, but I can tell you that uh, they are working around it, and uh, this is one of the uh, revenue generation that they are planning to have in the next coming years, and of course, it will benefit all of us. I know we had recently uh, a U.S. infrastructure bill, $550 billion in new spending, um, has earmarked a, a pretty sizable piece um, for what you're doing, and I'm sure other countries also are going to be spending money to try and improve the infrastructure. How much of a boost will that give you over the coming years? It's a huge boost. Um, we see it, uh, yes, as you mentioned, it's not only here in the state, it's all over, it's worldwide. Um, it's help us, um, it's help our customer to um, moderate their infrastructure and to think out of, out, out of the box. And also for us, it's, um, we're getting a big and very nice contracts to move ahead. Um, I think it's just the beginning. I think more and more money will go from government to those infrastructure because everybody understands that if you want uh, to move ahead with any segment, if it's healthcare, if it's education, if it's you name it, you need very robust infrastructure, uh, networking infrastructure uh, to support the demand of the traffic. Um, and the way to do it, it's with technology like us and other as well um, that we help uh, to convert it to be cloud-based solution, software-based solution. Um, so I think it's just the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm still working on upgrading my electric panel to 200, <laughs> to 200 amps. And after I get past that, then I'll boost uh, the cloud computing we'll power back, right? of my house. Ido, thanks so much for joining us. Ido, Susan there. He is the founder of DriveNets, coming out of Intucell and Cisco, talking to us about the move away from hardware and into the cloud that we've all taken part in over the past few years, but we need to accelerate. I promised you we would talk about corporate governance and um, ESG investing. Maya Becker joins us. She's the director of corporate governance and responsible investment with RBC. Um, and uh, Maya, it's great to have you on. You know, there was a time when we would have thought of this maybe as a fad, as a trend, but it now seems like a strategy. How do you see it? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We are seeing that ESG and climate change is absolutely top of mind for institutional investors. RBC GAM actually just completed our fifth annual responsible investment survey of 800 global institutional asset managers. And it showed that not only are investors concerned and interested in ESG, but climate change is their top priority after anti-corruption and cybersecurity. And for those that care about ESG, their top ESG concern is climate change. And this concern and this focus is really more um, felt certainly by European investors who are paying the closest attention, and we see regulation as a real key driver of that. Maya, I'm curious about developed versus undeveloped nations here, or underdeveloped nations. You know, we were having a conversation this morning with a representative from Mercy Corp, who was doing work in Nigeria and really talking about the lack of support that they were getting as a lot of conflict was breaking out in the country over climate-related issues. 
Do you think that these promises being made at COP26 are going to start moving the needle for the countries that need it most? I think that's a great question. And what we're seeing at the COP26 climate conference is really there are a lot of high-level commitments that are being made by governments. One of the key focuses of those conversations and negotiations is how advanced economies can provide support to developing nations, exactly what you're referring to there. I think what we're going to want to see moving away from COP as COP closes very shortly is how do those commitments start to turn into government frameworks, policies, or legislation? And what are the actions that governments will be taking as they walk and leave COP26 with those commitments made? And will that actually generate support for developing nations who in many ways are those that are most vulnerable to climate change. And that is a really important piece as the investors, when we look at ESG and we look at climate change, our focus is really on integrating climate change into the investment process. And that means looking at how climate risks and opportunities will impact different sectors and different geographies because they'll each be impacted in different ways. And we need to be taking those considerations into account when we look at our investments. And government has a key role to play in addressing climate change and in supporting that just and orderly transition for all global nations. And it feels to me like we'd rather pass out Band-Aids to underdeveloped nations than fix the gaping wounds in our own. we can't even uh, in the U.S., in Germany, in France, agree to phase out internal combustion engines at our manufacturers over the next 20 years. I mean, it's, I feel like COP26 achieved really very little in terms of meaningful commitments from the biggest nations. Am I wrong? Am I being too cynical? Well, I think, firstly, if we think of what we can take away from COP26, and it is still ongoing, there's still a few days left here, is we did see governments make some significant commitments at COP26. New climate pledges, which were due this year, since it is the fifth conference after the Paris Agreement, and that is something to take encouragement from, those commitments that are being made. There are also specific sectors... But we're so far off from we're so far off from hitting the climate pledges we made at uh, Paris in 2015. I mean, what's the point in making new promises if we can't even meet the old ones? Well, what will be important is when we leave COP26 is seeing how these pledges and these commitments get turned into policies and practices and looking at what those sector transition plans are, because I think that's what we're talking about here. How does each sector transition to net zero? What does that look like? What is the price on carbon? What are the subsidies? What are the commitments that are made at a sector level? Because each of those sectors needs to have a plan of how they're going to transition to net zero. The climate change and why it's so complex and challenging is because it affects all sectors and all geographies, although in different ways. Mm -hmm. And what we do need to be able to find is to be able to find solutions that bring all sectors along that pathway to net zero. Maya, what we're COP26 on the- does give us is a direction, but you're right. It doesn't give us an indication of the speed of travel and the path of that travel will take. And just 30 seconds or so here, Maya, because, you know, there's this great question now in the U.S. about the disclosures needed out of the SEC. Do you think that that can be done this year in a way that's meaningful to someone like you? Well, I think disclosures absolutely is a priority. We need a single, ideally global, sustainability and reporting standard for investors 
in order to integrate and consider how climate is impacting an individual issuer, we need that information to be consistent, comparable, and publicly disclosed. We're starting to see more interest from regulators in putting in place those consistent and comparable disclosures. What I would say we did here announce um, during COP26 is that the IFRS Foundation has formed a new International Sustainability Standards Board. And the hope there is that that will establish that common consistent standard for reporting, because Mm. absolutely that's something investors need. And it is an important piece of all of this. Yeah, that's the key. That's 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 got to be a key move for you and for your clients. Um, And that's, I think, what listeners investing in ESG want to want to get more of. Maya, thanks so much for joining us. Maya Becker is the director of corporate governance and responsible investment over at RBC Global Asset Management, talking to us about ESG and COP26. Let's get to crypto right now. I am pumped to talk to our next guest. Brett Harrison is the president of FTX, and um, this is a company we've been just watching absolutely explode. Brett, thanks so much for uh, coming on the program with us. Let's talk about the... Um, accept the broader acceptance of crypto. It's been amazing to me. Ten years ago, I spent two weeks living only on Bitcoin, stopped using dollars, and it was kind of a sideshow. It was a clown event. It was silly. It worked, but um, it was an oddity, let's say. And now everybody uh, in every age group, in every walk of life, wants to know something or does or thinks they know something about crypto. How have you experienced the acceptance? Yeah, I think personally, I have a similar story. You know, before joining FTX, I had very little uh, experience with crypto. I had primarily been in the proprietary trading space on the equities and equity derivative side for my whole career. And uh, coming to crypto, it was very new to me as well. But it does feel like it is, it's ubiquitous now. Everyone wants to know something about crypto, understand the space, either invest in it or build on top of it. And it's more than just, uh, you know, a potential new currency or a means of transfer. It's an entire technology platform that people are really excited for the applications of. Now, I'm really curious about what you think about the Bitcoin versus Ethereum debate. Because on one hand, you know, I talked to, for example, Elizabeth Stark of Lightning Labs last week. And for someone like her, Bitcoin is the ultimate uh, crypto to be building things on top of. But if you talk to someone like Ken Griffin, he believes that Bitcoin will be eventually replaced in concept by Ethereum. How do you make sense of a debate like that? Sure. You know, I think that one really needs to dig into the details of these different cryptos and why they're built and what they're used for to understand them. Bitcoin and Ethereum have very different applications. You know, Bitcoin itself was, was the first real crypto to gain mass adoption. So it has that staying power. But Ethereum is coming something some, uh, pretty separate. You know, it's a place where you can build smart contracts. You can actually build applications on top of Ethereum. It's sort of like an Internet layer or some kind of software, software platform. And even just those two alone aren't going to be the only answers. You know, there are other cryptocurrencies built on blockchains that have even higher transactions per second, lower cost fees to do transfers like Solana. We're going to see more than just Bitcoin and Ethereum that have staying power in the crypto ecosystem. Yeah, I think there are big differences there that maybe Ken Griffin doesn't take into account. Um, And he might be looking for something else um, rather than, um, uh, trying to appreciate uh, the, the the diversity in the crypto space. I wonder what you think of the... I've always 
had a question as to why we'll necessarily need to buy whole tokens or multiple tokens just because we like the technology platform upon which they're built. For example, um, I loved the internet computer when it came out. It didn't do so well, but the idea I thought was cool and the technology was cool. I didn't necessarily need to own a token or if I was going to start a business on it, wouldn't have needed to buy two. I think you make a really excellent point here, which is that there's the blockchain that's being built for particular applications. And then there's a token associated with that blockchain or a token associated with that application. And I agree with you. I don't think we need thousands of different tokens or hundreds of different blockchains. I think what we will see is a real consolidation over the next couple of years where a few winners will emerge in terms of you know, which blockchains are actually going to be the ones that people build applications upon. And the others probably will die off over the time. They don't have as many unique characteristics or they're not going to outcompete, you know, the couple best ones. But what's the utility of the token? I mean, if you build um, your business off of the Ethereum blockchain, you don't necessarily need to uh, acquire Ether to do that, do you? Well, you might need to use Ether in order to facilitate a transaction. So, for example, when you do an Ethereum-based transaction, you need to use Ether tokens to pay the gas fees required to do a transaction or to pay a smart contract to evaluate some function. So that's the sense in which you need the token. Um, but there are also applications built on top of them where they use different tokens. They can convert under the hood. And so it's not necessarily that you need to own them yourself in order to interact with them. You know, Brett, you have such an interesting background. Worked at some of the biggest market makers in the world, Jane Street, Citadel Securities, which is obviously is known for its relationship with Robinhood these days. I'm wondering if you think, and speaking of Robinhood, I'm wondering if you think crypto, how much it's truly a way to start to get financial assets into the hands of more younger people who for a long time until now have mm. not been trading, have not been paying attention to finances um, and have had a mistrust for so many uh, you know, institutions in finance. Absolutely. It's not just a way in, in theory. In, in practice, this is what empirically we're seeing. And there were um, several polls done that showed that the, the percentage of people who were underbanked owning crypto was actually considerably higher than those that were banked. In addition, demographics that are you know, typically more minority demographics that are, have either you know, not had the same kinds of fair access to, to banking and investment opportunities in the past are disproportionately involved in crypto. So I do think that there's a, there's a democratizing effect of crypto in that it's so low friction, so low barrier to get involved, to invest and I, I think that that's why it's so popular among young people. And also, there are so many applications, again, of crypto. You know, it's not just about mm. owning a Bitcoin and hoping that it goes up. Think about all of the blockchain-based gaming that we're seeing investments in, including from our own company, FTX. Think about NFTs and the, the idea of having collectibles and collectible art and communities around them. These are all, I think, very appealing to, to the younger generations. Is the SEC going to figure out a way to regulate this stuff? I mean, so far they've allowed a futures-based ETF, which is, I think, pretty silly. Um, but it doesn't really make much sense since it's an unregulated product to begin with. So it, it's a very good question. Right now, people might not know that cryptocurrency exchanges are not regulated the same way as a stock exchange or a futures exchange. 
they're regulated under the FinCEN money services business, which is not really the most appropriate regulatory regime for an exchange that can have millions of transactions per day happening, you know, by high frequency market makers. Mm. And so there's we are in constant dialogue with the SEC, with the CFTC. We believe that there is probably going to be some sort of uh, joint jurisdiction between these two agencies of exactly what form we don't yet know um, that's going to be able to regulate these tokens because it's it's tricky. You know, for every one of these tokens, they have different characteristics. Some of them have characteristics of commodities, some of characteristics of equities. And, you know, we'll, we'll see where, the, um, where regulation heads in the near future. It's a very interesting point. Brett, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Brett Harrison there, president of FTX, talking to us about the crypto world. Let's get over uh, right now to Wendy Wong right now, head of sustainable investment partnerships at New York Life Investments. Wendy, we were talking earlier about the um, the trend in, or the it's beyond a trend, I guess, at this point, the strategy of ESG investing. How has COP26 changed things for you? First of all, thank you so much for having me and for your interest in ESG investing. Um, COP20, you know, it's been clear that it's a hot topic. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's a realization that there's only so much that governments can do, um, but there's also a role that the private sector can play as well. Well, I'm wondering the private sector, as far as it goes, do you think that some of the biggest strides can be made there? Uh, well, you know, we always believe that when we work together uh, for a collective goal, good things could happen. And so that was the thinking between our IQ dual impact ETFs. So it's meant to have a compelling investment thesis that is investing in some of these themes that are so important to us, gender equality, climate, health and well-being. But there's also um, a give back component as well. So we worked with a nonprofit organization for each of these um, new ETFs. And we reinvest our management fees, a portion of our management fees back to these ET, uh, these nonprofit organizations so they can continue doing the work they're doing. So it's a great partnership between the private sector and the public sector. So what are the themes? Uh, talk to us m- more about this ETF product. What are the themes here? We have four themes um, that we have um, that are part of the IQ Dual Impact ETFs. We have a health and well-being theme that was designed uh, with American Heart Association to help uh, people live longer, healthier lives. There's a gender equality ETF that was developed with Girls Who Code, investing in uh, companies, U.S. companies that have demonstrated a commitment to gender equality. There's a cleaner transport. Um, It provides exposure to global companies that are helping us move to a more environmentally efficient transportation technologies. That includes bikes, rails, um, buses, of course, electric vehicles, but it's also beyond all of that. It's sort of the grid and infrastructure that's needed to produce and um, support all of that and the value chain. Um, and then finally, we have an oceans-themed ETF, IQ Oceans, um, Clean Oceans ETF, OCEN, that was developed to align with Oceana. And that, that offers exposure to global companies that are helping to protect and achieve a cleaner ocean. Yeah, I'm curious about this because a lot of, you know, the newer generations that want to invest in socially friendly ETFs and investment products, a lot of them feel like they're getting exposures exposures to non-clean 
items as well, uh, when, especially when you're kind of investing in things that pertain to the broader market. I mean, what advice do you have to people who really want to start to limit their investments towards things that are good for the environment and good for society? Well, there's a lot of different ways people incorporate ESG in their portfolio. You know, we started sort of as an industry doing negative screaming, where we're sort of screening out sin stocks and, uh, you know, fossil fuels. It's gone a lot more sophisticated. Um, so, you know, part of New York Life Investments is a company called Candrium. They've been doing sustainable investing for over 25 years. Um, and, you know, they were a key uh, key part in developing these ETFs. And they do a lot of scoring and screening of companies. They've been doing it for a long time. They specialize this. Um, So it's just making sure that investors are doing their research, um, that the product that they are investing in is, in fact, accomplishing what they want it to do. And if that means more than negative screening and, you know, sort of the the top of the top, then, you know, that's what they should look for. if you don't mind, I'm, I want to double up because if I'm looking, for example, at the the Ocean ETF that you guys had formed, uh, some of the companies include, if I'm reading this correctly, Home Depot, Microsoft, Procter & Gamble, and even Siemens. Some of the companies that are in here, how do you really assess them on some of the things that are doing that are good for the environment, but also some of the things that are maybe not meeting the standards that we'll want to see yet in a few years? Yeah, so far, we can use Ocean, right? So that investment thesis is, you know, companies that are taking steps toward mitigating harm to the ocean. Um, You know, companies are not perfect. No one is. We're all making, uh, we're making steps. It's sort of a gradual process. So it doesn't, it it includes companies that are sort of um, doing the best in their sector among their peers of reaching toward that. Um, so in addition to some of the, the, the stocks that you had listed, it also includes um, Adidas, you know, for the first time in 2020, more than half of the polyester that are used in their products are going to come from recycled plastic waste. We love that story. And then from 2024 onwards, their company, that company is committed to only using recycled polyester. So it's that circular economy. Um, and, you know, a seafood a seafood provider is also included from Norway, and they supply sustainably farmed salmon and processed seafood uh, worldwide. And everything that they send out is sustainably certified. All right. Really interesting stuff, Wendy. Thanks so much for joining us and talking to us about these products. Wendy Wong is head of Sustainable Investment Partnerships at New York Life Investments, talking about these um, thematic ETFs and the broader um, ESG uh, trends that have really gone beyond at this point, and I think are, are becoming just a mainstream strategy for investing as um, we, ch- we pr- as we uh, um, confront these challenges with things like COP26. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.